Well, uh, welcome uh, again to Faith. If we have met, my name is Mike. I am one of the pastors on staff here, and we're glad to have you with us in person today. Glad to have you with us online today. If you're joining us for the first time, you have uh, stumbled into the last week of a series that we've entitled Heart, Soul, and Mind. And you don't need to panic. You can pick right up uh, with us and understand what's going on. Because really, very simply in the series, we're talking about this idea that it's possible to be somebody who loves God, who lives in relationship with him, who is even like working to do good in his name, and still be a person who struggles when it comes to our emotional health and well-being. In fact, in this series, we've been looking at what the Bible has to say about this and people in the Bible who have had these struggles, people who've loved God, who, who were living in relationship with him, who are doing great things for him and who still struggled in these areas of their lives. And our goal in this series has been that folks would find hope in that, that they'd be like, oh my goodness, like the Bible talks about what I'm struggling with. There are people in this book who I can relate to in my own struggles. There are folks that get this. And it's also been our goal that people would find help, that we would see practical, accessible tools that the scriptures put into our hands to help us move from a season of struggle towards a season of healing and health. And so this week as we continue, we're going to look at a scene from the life of the prophet Elijah. And it's a scene where I think you could argue that Elijah was wrestling with what we would call today depression. And as we look at his story, we're going to see some of the contributing factors that led to that and some of the course corrections that God brought to bear on Elijah's life. And again, if you're someone who has wrestled with this in the past or struggling with this in the present, our hope is that this would be something that gives you hope and something that offers you help. Now, we want to give credit where credit is due, and today we're going to lean heavily into a book by author Chris Hodge. It is called Out of the Cave, excellent book on this topic, and especially when we talk about the course corrections, we're really going to lean into some of what Chris has had to say. But before we jump into things, we want to take a minute and pray for our time, and we also want to pray for the hurts. A few weeks back, we mentioned Chris and Rebecca Hertz. They are missionaries who we partner with. They work with Wycliffe translators, and they have been stationed in Thailand. Had an opportunity to speak to Chris this week, and when we talked last, we just knew that he was really sick, and they were trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, we have since found out that he has been diagnosed with stage 4 lymphoma, and he's going to be starting chemo this week. They are back from Thailand, him and his family. He's going to be starting treatment. And so we want to pray for them, for him, his wife, Rebecca, their kids, and their upcoming, you know, his upcoming treatment, and then just our time together. So let's pray, and then we'll get into things. Father, we want to pray specifically for Chris, for your hand of healing and mercy on him and on his body. Father, we pray the treatments would be effective and uh, just as he hopes that he's going to be back on the mission field again and in a place where he is healthy and able to serve you. Father, we pray for Rebecca as she is managing so much as it pertains to his uh, treatment and their family. God, please just give her strength and pray for their kids. Uh, their whole lives have been uprooted and turned upside down. That you would help them with the adjustment that they are facing. Father, please help this family sense that you are with them, that you are present. 
Give them your strength, your comfort, and your peace. We pray for your hand of provision as they're trying to manage medical costs and the transition from Thailand back here to the States. As we just look at the life of Elijah and consider this topic of depression, Father, we pray that you would please open our hearts and our minds to your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So chapter 19, the book of um, 1 Kings. We meet Elijah, and uh, here's what we read about him. While he, and he's, he is Elijah, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. So Elijah is sitting under this bush. He's asking God to take him out of the equation. And if you've ever wondered, well, what does a prayer like that sound like? You don't have to wonder, because Elijah's prayer is recorded for us. We read next that he prayed, Lord, I have had enough. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Elijah's basically going, God, I am fed up with this. God, I, I want you to snuff my life out like you would a candle. God, I'm no better than the losers who have gone before me. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's probably fair to say this might be somebody who's wrestling with some depression. When, when you reach a point where you're like, I'm no good, my life is no good, God, kill me, God, I, I, I'm, I, I'm worse than anybody who's gone before me, depression might be part of the equation. This is where we find Elijah. And again, Elijah, we're going to see, he is a guy who loves God, who is walking in relationship with God, and who has done great things for God. So, let, let me ask you. Have you ever found yourself here? Maybe not to the extent that Elijah was at. Maybe it presented differently for you. But have you ever had a season where you found yourself wrestling with some level of depression? Chances are most of us who are sitting in this room, many of us who are watching online could say, yeah, I've been there. If, if I'm just being honest, I've had seasons like that. I, I can remember February of 2021. We're about a year into the pandemic. And, and for so many people, it was a really difficult season. For me, it had been a really difficult year. And in fact, I, it was one of those seasons where the stress went up and then it just maintained for like a year straight, just this heightened level of stress. We're trying to make decisions here at church. It didn't matter what decision we made. Somebody's mad. Somebody's, you know, calling us up and accusing us of one thing or another, telling us they're leaving the church, telling us how awful we are. Our team worked longer hours in that year than we had ever worked with no, no, no visible results. It, it, hands down, the most difficult season of ministry I have ever experienced. So I'm sitting on a beach, I'm on vacation in February that year, and I'm about four days into vacation when I realize I'm in trouble. Because for, for four days, I don't have any of the intense busyness that's been going on in my life to keep me distracted from what's going on inside of me. And all of a sudden, I am very aware of what's going on inside of me because there's nothing distracting me from that. And as I'm sitting there, I realize 
I am numb. I am numb to my life spiritually. I am numb to the most important relationships in my life. I am numb to my role in ministry. See, over the course of that year, in an effort to try and manage what we were up against, I didn't, make just, I didn't just make withdrawals from my emotional and physical and relational and spiritual accounts. I had dangerously overdrawn on all of those accounts. And as I sat there, I became very aware that I was just numb. I didn't feel anything about any of the things in my life that should have been the most important things in my life. Now, at that moment, that was the best I could articulate what was going on inside of me. In retrospect, I was wrestling with a season of depression. Have you ever had a season like that? Or maybe, maybe are you in one now? Or maybe based on your family history, do you know you're prone to have one in the future? If you've ever been there, if you're there now, if you know you're likely to go there in the future, today we're going to look at that season for Elijah. And as we do, we're going to try and just think through a couple of really critical questions. First one being like, how does a person get there? Like, what are the contributing factors for someone like Elijah or for you or me that would lead us to a season like that? And then question number two is like, okay, what do we do about this? Like, what are the course corrections that that can be offered to help us when we find ourselves in a season like that? And so today we're going to try and begin to work through these questions. And I emphasize begin because when it comes to this topic of depression, there is not a one-size-fits-all for this. What we talk about today, for for many of us, it's going to resonate. For others of us, it, it may not. And... When it comes to depression, just like when we were talking about anxiety, we said, hey, there's no silver bullet solution that makes us all better overnight. It works the same way with depression. If you want an instantaneous solution, you're going to find me to be incredibly frustrating today. You should just pull out your phone now and start, you know, scroll through social, all right? Keep you busy for the next half hour. We're not going to have that. We're going to talk about principles that we can apply to our lives over time to progressively move us in a healthier direction. So that said, let's take a look at Elijah, and we'll start with the contributing factors, all right? And to understand some of the contributing factors in Elijah's life that took him to this place where he's like, Lord, I've had enough, take my life, all right? You need to flip back a chapter, because that's 1 Kings chapter 19. You flip back to 1 Kings chapter 18, and you see what those factors are. 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah is feuding with the monarchs of Israel. He is feuding with Ahab and Jezebel. And Ahab and Jezebel, they have been leading the nation of Israel in the worship of Baal instead of in the worship of Yahweh. And and as they've been leading the people in the worship of Baal, one of the things that they've been doing is systematically eliminating the prophets of Yahweh. They've literally been hunting them down, and when they find them, they murder them. And so for three years, Elijah has been living in hiding, And God reaches out to Elijah and says, hey, I want you to go to Ahab, tell him to meet you on Mount Carmel, and you guys are going to have the ultimate showdown to determine who is really God, Yahweh or Baal. And so the the, the showdown takes place in chapter 18 here, and for the time's sake, I'm going to summarize it for us as briefly as I can. 
So God sends this message to Elijah. Elijah reaches out to Ahab the way he's told to. And he's like, listen, I want you to get the prophets of Baal, the leading people of Israel, meet me up on Mount Carmel. We're going to have a showdown to determine whose God really is God. And the rules for the contest were very simple. You guys are going to sacrifice a bull to Baal. I'm going to sacrifice a bull to the Lord. And then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And whichever God answers by fire, that God is really God. Simple enough, right? You know, you just, you call on your God, I'll call on my God. Whoever answers by fire, that's who's really God. So Elijah being the gentleman that he is, he lets his opponents go first. And then the, the prophets of Baal, they sacrifice their bull, they put it on the altar, and then they pray to Baal. And they sing for Baal. And they dance for Baal. And they cut themselves and they bleed for Baal. They, they shout at the top of their lungs to Baal. And they get nothing. Not a response. Not so much as a spark. And then when they wear themselves out, after having done this from dawn to dusk, It's Elijah's turn. And Elijah, he repairs the altar of the Lord. He sacrifices his bull and he puts it on the wood there on the altar. He digs a trench around the thing. He tells the people, hey, pour water on there. They don't do it once, they do it three times over. They do it enough to soak the sacrifice and the wood and to fill up the trench with water. And then Elijah, he prays. And when he prays to the Lord, we're told that the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the soil, and it also licked up the water in the trench. It's one of these things. He prays and it's, ah, fire just consumes it all. And the people who witness this, they very astutely come to the conclusion, oh, the Lord, he's God. No, no, no question for them, right? And so Elijah says, okay, fine. He, the Lord's God, and he has the prophets of Baal executed. And then he sends Ahab home to Jezreel. He's like, you better, you better head home now if you're going to beat the weather. And Ahab, he, he goes off home, and then Elijah begins to pray for rain. He has not rained for three years. He prayed that it would stop raining in judgment of Ahab and Jezebel for what they were doing. And so now he starts praying, it's going to rain. And all night long, he prays for rain. And at the end of the, the, the night of prayer, as the morning's coming up, he can see the storm rolling in, and he hightails it out to Jezreel to meet with Ahab. Now, Ahab gets there first. That makes sense. He left earlier. And when he gets there, he tells his wife Jezebel, hey, you know, we had the showdown, and there's fire from heaven. Everybody's confessing the Lord is God, and the prophets of Baal have been executed. And she is not okay with it. And so she has this message for Elijah, waiting for him. She's like, hey, may may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. In other words, she's like, buddy, I swear to God, if by tomorrow you're not as dead as the prophets you executed today. And when Elijah gets this message, we're told Elijah was afraid. And ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And this is where we found him in chapter 19. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. 
Now, I would contend there are at least four classic contributing factors that lead to Elijah getting to this place. And so today we're just going to kind of walk through them one at a time and, and just as we do, just see if any of this sounds familiar for you. First contributing factor for Elijah is biological. Just think about what's been happening so far, right? He has this all-day-long showdown with him and the prophets of Baal and the king. And then after you know, spending all day with the showdown, he spends all night praying. No sleeping, praying. Then he gets done praying all night, and he hightails it from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. That's a 30-mile trek. He gets there, and he's told, you're a dead man walking. And he takes off. And he goes from Jezreel to Beersheba. That's another 90 miles. And then when he gets there, he goes another day's journey into the wilderness. I don't know about you guys. I get tired just reading about what he did. He is living this out. Listen, Elijah, he is making significant withdrawals from his biological account. So, like, he's making them as though his resources there are unlimited. The problem being, they're not. So when he gets to Jezreel, he gets to Beersheba, he gets a day's journey into the wilderness, he's sitting under that broom bush, he is hungry, he is thirsty, and he is physically exhausted. Just wiped out. And what is going on inside of him physically is beginning to manifest itself in his life emotionally. So contributing factor number one, biological. Contributing factor number two, circumstantial. Again, think about what we've heard about has happened in his life. He has spent the last three years plus at war with the most powerful people in his country. For, for better than three years, they have hunted him down to take his life. He has lived under the threat of death. Over those three years, he has watched as his fellow prophets, were, who were not as good at hiding his, as he was, be found and be murdered. He has three years of intense, ongoing, unrelenting stress. Then he has the showdown. And there's fire from heaven and the people confessing the Lord is God and, and the prophets of Baal executed. And if you're like, well, isn't that a good thing? It is. It is. But here's, here's the problem when you have a crazy victory like that. There's nowhere to go but down. You can, you can have a mountaintop experience and it's wonderful, but you don't get to live up there. It just, life just doesn't work that way. You have to come down. And when you're coming down, it feels like an emotional letdown. And then he, you know, he, he rolls into town after that huge victory with all the letdown that comes with that. And he's told, you're a dead man. Jezebel tells him, I'm going to have you murdered. And you're like, well, he's been living under the threat of murder for the last three years. What's the difference? Here's the difference. For three years, she had no idea where he was or how to find him. Now, he is accessible, he is exposed. In our lives, ideally, stress goes like this. We, we have a moment where just things get crazy, and then we power through, and then things calm down, and oh, we get a breather. 
And then life gets crazy again, and there's all kinds of stress, and then things calm down after we work through that, and we catch our breath. Again, Elijah has had three years of unrelenting, heightened stress. And then he has these circumstances that peg the needle even more. We can survive this. We can do this. You, you create a heightened level of stress and you maintain that. It is only so long before a person's going to snap. So, factor number two, circumstances. Factor number three, relational. Again, remember, we read of Elijah. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. This is not somebody who's setting up some healthy boundaries with somebody who's a stress-inducing individual in their life. No, this is Elijah cutting himself off from the last piece of positive community that he has left. And as he isolates himself, what he finds himself doing is now he is dealing with all the biological factors and all the circumstantial factors by himself. And that makes him a prime candidate for our fourth contributing factor. And that's spiritual. The weight is the weight of our other three factors are just pressing down on Elijah. This narrative begins to roll in his head. And we know the narrative is there because it makes it from his mind to his mouth. Narratives where Elijah expresses things like this. He says, I am no better than my ancestors. Now, what does he mean by that? I love the way author Chris Hodge summarizes this for us. He says, you know, Elijah's received this death threat from Jezebel. Elijah assumes his death is now inevitable. The faith that had long fueled his life as God's prophet suddenly evaporated in despair. Elijah concluded, he's just like every other Israelite. Bandwagon believer, fickle in his faith. No better than his ancestors who one day are praising God for delivering them from Egypt and the very next day they're worshiping the golden calf. I'm no better than my ancestors. Or Elijah says this, he says, you know, God's, he's like, God, <laughs> I have been very zealous for the Lord. I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. And yet the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. In other words, God, don't you understand how it works? Like, I do the right thing, and then you come through. I'm doing the right thing. You're not keeping up your end of the bargain here, God. Look at this mess. Like, they, they're not listening to my preaching. They're acting like a bunch of animals. My ministry, my life, it's all a failure. These narratives are playing in his mind and just pouring out of his mouth. Now, where do these narratives come from? I would contend they come from both the outside and the inside for Elijah. For example, the Bible is super clear that for Elijah or for you or for me, that the reality, the, the, the presence of dark spiritual forces in our lives, that it is a reality, biblically speaking. The Bible describes the devil as a roaring lion 
seeking those whom he may devour. It tells us that he is the father of lies, that he has come to kill and steal and destroy. As Elijah is dealing with just all kinds of physical depletion and stressful circumstances and is doing so in isolation, it is a, it's a simple thing for a spiritual enemy on the outside to use all that to propagate these narratives in his head. Not only so, but I think it's, Elijah is just as capable as a broken individual who, again, is all worn out, all stressed out, all by himself. It is just as possible that his spirit reaches a place of toxicity where he is just as capable of propagating these narratives himself. And, and chances are, it's probably a little bit of both going on. But these narratives start rolling, and he just beats himself up with these narratives, and he begins to doubt God's goodness and God's presence and God's work in his life and in his world. So, four classic factors, biological, circumstantial, relational, and spiritual. Now, are there other factors that can lead to depression? Absolutely. You have biochemical imbalance, you have trauma, you have a, a genetic predisposition, and more. But for Elijah, th this is more than enough to be getting on with. And here's the thing about these. When someone is wrestling with depression, one or more of these factors is almost always present. And here's the good news about that. Here's the good news. Every one of these factors, we are not helpless when it comes to these things. There is a degree of influence that we all possess when it comes to every one of these factors. Which is why I think God offers the course corrections to Elijah that he does. So let's, let's look at the course corrections next because there's a course correction that corresponds to each factor. We'll start with biological. Elijah, he's under the, under the broom bush, right? And he basically passes out in exhaustion. And then God sends an angel to minister to Elijah. And Elijah has something to eat. He has something to drink. And then he goes to sleep again. All of which points us to the reality that sometimes the most spiritual thing that you and I can do is have a snack and take a nap. <laughs> Amen? Yeah. You can get home and be like, Pastor says you need a nap, right? <laughs> it's just, but here's the, here's the reality. We can, only, we can only run so hard, fueled by caffeine and carbs, denying our body the rest that it needs. We can only do that for so long before we're going to crash. If we find ourselves in a season where we are struggling emotionally, we would do well to take a step back and go, okay, how's my diet? How's my diet? I mean, we're, we're going to do a you know, congregational meeting after church, and you know, we're going to have Uncle Andy's pizza. I love me Uncle Andy's pizza when I'm eating it. I never feel so good, you know, a few hours later after I've overeaten it. But I, we're going to take a step and go, hey, what I'm eating, is this healthy? Is this helping me physically? How's my hydration? Like, am I, am I really simple, am I getting enough water or am I just pouring a bunch of, you know, caffeine-laced diuretics down my throat and wondering why I don't feel good? How many hours of sleep am I getting a night? 
what, something that always happens when somebody decompensates emotionally is they are not sleeping. Am I working seven days straight or am I making sure that I'm getting some time off each week? Elijah is, God takes Elijah's place where he begins to replenish his, his biological account because God understands that, that when you hit empty and you keep running anyway, he understands what it's going to do to Elijah, what it's going to do to me, what it's going to do to you. So he offers that course correction. Next course correction Elijah is, is offered, it comes in the midst of all of the incredibly stressful circumstances that he is experiencing. God tries to communicate truths to Elijah in the midst of that. God takes Elijah to this quiet, he's in this quiet place all by himself. And God says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. It's like, Elijah, you're going to experience my presence, and there's something I want to communicate to you. And then if you're familiar with the story, you remember that, you know, there was a great and powerful wind that tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And in that quiet place, in the whisper, Elijah experiences the presence of God and hears his voice. We can have these stressful circumstances that are just bearing the needle. And we're beginning to break down emotionally in the midst of that. And there's the temptation is to go, 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 do, 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 perform, perform, perform. I'm going to work my way out of this thing. In that season, it is so important for us to go, you know what? I have got to carve out some time. I'm just going to be quiet. I'm going to be alone with God. No TV, no phone, no radio, no tablet, no computer, ideally no kids. I'm just, I know, it's hard. Young moms, this is hard. For you, this is these snippets when you're in the bathroom and you can see their little fingers reaching under the door, right? But I'm just, I'm going to get along with God. I'm, like Elijah, I'm just going to unleash what's going on inside of me. I'm just going to be quiet. I'm going to try and sense his presence. God is no more present in that time than he was before that time. It's just all that stuff distracts us from sensing his presence. We're going to listen as he reminds us, you are not alone. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Nothing, nothing can separate you from my love. God brings Elijah to this quiet place so he can hear the whisper. Next course correction that comes is relational. Read that God says to Elijah, he says, hey, I want you to anoint Elisha, the son of Saphat, to succeed you as prophet. Now, please don't misunderstand. This is not like God slapping Elijah on the wrist. You're a bad prophet, and I'm giving your job to somebody else. No. If you know Elisha, 
This is God providing Elijah with a companion. A companion who is going to stick to him like glue. Who's going to walk with him step for step over the next six years. Elijah has six continued years after this of ministry until he's taken up to heaven in the fiery chariot. This is God making sure Elijah, a guy who was prone to isolate himself in the midst of his struggles, to make sure he has got community, like it or not. Because again, the temptation, when, when, when we are worn out and stressed out, is to isolate, to withdraw from people. And what we fail to realize is that is the time when we need to be physically present with people the most. When I'm exhausted and stressed out and wrestling emotionally, that is when it is most important for me to go to small group. That is when it is most important for me to be physically present in church. That is when it is most important for me to make sure that I set up a time to grab coffee or to, to sit down and have breakfast with a mentor or somebody who's a friend or a pastor or a counselor. I need people. The temptation is to pull into my shell. But what we need most is to be with others. And so God puts Elisha into Elijah's life, and Elisha won't let Elijah be. He puts community there. And then there's one last course correction. In the midst of the, the narratives that Elijah is telling himself, God offers a spiritual course correction. Again, Elijah's got these narratives spinning in his mind where he's beating himself up and he's doubting God's goodness and presence and work in his life and in his world. God first says to Elijah, he's like, hey, I want you to go and anoint a new king in Aram and I want you to go and anoint a new king in Israel. God is saying to Elijah, hey, I know it's crazy. I know it, like, everything seems to be going wrong. I am not done with you. I still have a purpose for your life. And then as, as Elijah's like, I'm the only one left. They've killed everybody. It's just me. God says to Elijah, no, no, no. I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. In other words, Elijah I know you can't see it. I know you can't sense it right now. But I am at work for good in you and in your life and in your world. See, when, when we're wrestling emotionally, it's so easy to start asking why. God, why is this happening? Why aren't you doing what I want you to do? Why are people acting this way? Why, why, why? And, and the trouble with why is very rarely do we get an answer to why. Very rarely is the answer satisfying when we do get it. And why propagates the narratives. Narratives that will cause us to beat ourselves down and to doubt God. Rather than ask why, we need to become obsessed with how. God, how can I serve you? God, how are you at work? I know I can't see it right now, but would you help me to see how are you at work? God, how do you want me to respond? When, again, when we're stuck on why, it will propagate the narratives that will, that will cause us to beat ourselves up and to doubt God. When we focus in on how, 
we're able to see, oh, no, 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 God isn't done with me yet. He still has a purpose for me. God is still, how will help us to see, God is still at work for good. I'm called according to his purpose. I love him. He is still at work for good in my life. Elijah is called by God. Less why, more how. So I sat on that beach, exhausted. Not sleeping well, not eating well. Sat on that beach. The, the, the stress needle for about a year straight had just been pegged. It was just an, a year straight of unrelenting high levels of stress. I was socially, relationally isolated and distanced. I was government mandated to be so. Sat on the beach and the narratives that were playing in my mind were not healthy. And so I knew I, I got to do something. So when I got home, I started to try and incorporate these corrections in. So I got home and I was like, okay, I got to cut back on the COVID comfort foods. Like I need to get some sleep and it's illegal for me to go to the gym right now. I got to figure out some creative way to exercise and it helps some. And I got back home and I went, okay, all the do, 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 like, you know, like busy, 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 busy. I have got to make sure that in the midst of that, I am carving out time just to be with God. Just turn everything off and just journal, cry out to him, express my utter dependence on him, and try and put myself in a place where I can hear his voice and sense his presence. And it helps some more. And I got home, as chance would have it, to an email from my friend Kevin Butcher. Kevin runs a ministry called Rooted. And the email's like, hey, I'm going to start a small group for pastors who are struggling in COVID. And I was like, I need to get my butt in that small group. And I did. And we would get together regularly and just share about what was going on and what was a struggle. And we were just present with each other and listened to one another and prayed with one another. And it helped some. And I sat down that year and I tried to figure out where am I asking why and what would it look like for me to instead to ask how. Now, how can I serve you? How are you at work? How do you want, to resp- want me to respond? And doing so changed the narratives in my head and it helped some more. And over the course of the next 8 to 12 months, I tried to consistently over time live into those course corrections. And over time, it moved me from a place where I was really struggling to a place where I experienced a whole lot more health and healing. When we're wrestling emotionally, Elijah points us to four classic contributing factors. And again, are there others? Absolutely. Absolutely. But Elijah also points us to four course corrections, one that corresponds to each of the contributing factors. And again, if if we're here, if we wrestle with clinical depression, we're probably going to need to, in conjunction with these things, consider therapy with, a, with a, somebody who's a trained professional. We're going to need to think about, is, is medication appropriate for us, especially if we have some kind of chemical imbalance? But for every one of us, these things are accessible 
we have influence over these areas of our lives, and if we are willing to get after this and live into them over time, they can help change the direction of where we are going emotionally. Would you stand with me and pray, please, church? Father, I just pray that you would help us, please. Father, help us just if we are in a season of struggle to be self-aware of where, where we are at with our physical bodies, what kind of circumstances are raging around us, how much community we have or don't have, what kind of narratives are playing in our minds. God, help us to see where these factors are factors for us. And God, just, we just pray for your grace and for your help and making course corrections. Father, pour out your spirit onto us as we struggle. Father, help us to see what direction wisdom would guide us in. Father, help us to be faithful and consistent over time in following that. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.